Mark 5, Breaking the Chains, we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. My experience with the Lord has been this, that when I came to Jesus Christ in my early 20s, um, I had a lot of chains around my neck. It almost reminds me of the story of Ebenezer Scrooge when Jacob Marley comes to him and says, your chain was this long seven Christmases ago. And uh, we, we have chains in our lives. Sometimes our chains are emotional pain, psychological. Sometimes it's all the wounds and scars from childhood and things that happened there. Sometimes it's a combination of things. And link by link, those chains can be broken in your life if you allow the Lord to have access to you. So we are going to look at a story this morning that is one of the one writer put it this way, we're going to look at one of the scariest dudes in the Bible, a man that has been so chained down by demonic power that he doesn't even look human anymore. And we're going to watch Jesus confront him. Um, we're going to watch Jesus set him free. And it's an incredible story. But it's not just a story. It's something that actually happened in history, and it's something that happens over and over and over again. Every time someone meets Jesus, the chains are broken. The chains of the enemy are broken. Your chains can be broken this morning if you're willing to allow him to have access to your life. Would you bow with me, Father? Thank you so much for the fact that you do break the chains in our lives, the chains of darkness, the chains of spiritual death depression, scars and wounds that we all carry. And Lord, we want to be a free people. And you said you've come to, to make us free. And if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so Lord, as we have a chance now to read this account, um, we want to just, we want to see ourselves in this story, Lord. This man seems so distant from most of us, but we can all relate to being in darkness, we can all relate to being uh, bound by things that weighed us down. And I just pray that you would move in a mighty way this morning, setting people free. Let us tune into your voice, speak to us, we're listening, and we just pray that your power would be restoring and refreshing and breaking chains and healing and saving. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, if you were with us last time, Jesus has just calmed the uh, storm on the Sea of Galilee, and it's been an incredible miracle, and the disciples are so overwhelmed by the fact that he can speak to the natural elements and get a response that they say, who is this then that even the wind and the waves obey him? And that's how we ended the last story, from a storm on the sea to a storm on the land. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And then he slept for a while because he needed sleep so desperately. But the disciples did not know what they were in for. Their faith was being stretched in the storm on the lake, but they were about to get more faith stretching. Because when Jesus said, let's go to the other side, the other side was pagan territory. It was known as the Decapolis. That'll sound familiar to some of you, maybe to others, no. But the idea of the, the, the DEC or the Decalogue or the Decapolis is the 10 cities. And they were founded by the Greeks and then they became Roman-dominated cities. And they were very pagan. They practiced the fertility cult. There was Baal worship going on. The pig was the sacred animal, which was abominable to the Jews. And if you read up on this, uh, one of the reasons why the area was abominable was there was a co-mingling of Jew and Gentile. And so this was the area that Jesus said, we're going to go to the other side. And the disciples probably were not too excited to go over there. And from the account, we read, Jesus goes. He sets this man free. Uh, one account has two men, and we'll talk about that. And then he leaves, which would make it clear to me as a student of the Bible that Jesus came to the other side of the lake, to the Decapolis, for the purpose of setting one man free. 
Just like he did with the woman at the well when he said, when John 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. Well, he had to go to the Decapolis. And I believe that this is an act of God's mercy. I believe that what we're seeing here is his desire to break the chains in people's lives. I don't know what chains you have in your life, but that's what he wants to do. Isaiah 52, 2 says these words. It says, shake yourself from the dust, rise up. O captive Jerusalem, loose yourself from the chains around your neck. O captive daughter of Zion. Jeremiah 40, verse 4 says, but now, behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. If you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along and I will look after you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Wherever it seems good and right, go. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Who do you want to serve? Jesus in John 10 verse 10 says, The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. As a Christian, uh, in my early years, I heard about this abundant life that Christians were supposed to be enjoying. Jesus said, I came that you might have life to the full. There was only one problem for me as a new Christian. I didn't know what that meant. I had heard about the abundant life, but I, ne I wasn't necessarily living it, at least not consistently. And then I found out there were two sides to this spiritual coin. Jesus came to give us life and that to the full, but there is an enemy who comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus came, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. He came to destroy those things that try to destroy us. His power is greater than all the power, not just on the earth, but in the universe. And Jesus says, amen, do you believe it? He says, let's go over to the other side, boys. It's time for some more faith stretching. Once you become a Christian, it's not just about your deliverance. It's about other people hearing about how their chains can be broken. And that's part of what Jesus was doing with the disciples. He was trying to show them that it's not about you arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom and getting your mommy to ask me if you can sit on my right hand and on my left hand. Boys, that's not what this is about. This is about you going with this gospel and showing other people how they can be free. That's what the church exists to do, to be missionaries. In fact, you could say that Jesus, his visit to the Decapolis is a short-term missions trip. Pretty quick, pretty short. <laughs> Shows up in the morning, frees a man, gets back in the boat because they didn't want him to stick around. These 10 cities in rabbinic tradition, the teaching of the rabbis were cities where uh, Joshua had pushed the Canaanite peoples to the other side of the Jordan River. So that's why it was kind of seen as Gentile territory and dominated by that particular mindset. And here's where Jesus goes to these 10 cities to set people free. This section that uh, we're in right now uh, tackles the four greatest areas where we have fear, I'm going to give this to you as an outline, and we'll tackle this as we go ahead. But if you're taking notes, let me just give it to you. Four overwhelming fears of humanity. Fear of natural forces, Mark 4, 35 through 40. Jesus has just calmed the sea. We get, you know, we hear of tornadoes, storms, earthquakes, the like. We can feel out of control, floods, that kind of thing. Jesus' power over natural forces, Mark 4, 35 through 40. His power over demonic forces is in our story here, Mark 5, 1 through 20. Um, that's something else that freaks people out. Unseen dark forces. It can be very, a very freaky, weird idea. Jesus has power over them. The third area is power over physical sickness in Mark 5, 21 through 34. Here's where Jesus will... Touched the woman with the flow of blood. She spent all her money on doctors, found no healing, no answers to her questions. We get fearful of that sickness. And can we find healing 
in that sickness. And finally, Jesus' power over physical death is found in Mark 5, 35 through 43, where he talks to the little girl who was dead and says, little girl, arise. Power over natural forces, demonic forces, physical sickness, and physical death. That's our Jesus. And Mark is written to Christians in Rome who were suffering persecution, and they needed to know that they had a Savior who still had power, power to deliver, power to answer the deepest questions of our lives if we will allow him in our lives. And they came to the other side, Mark 5, verse 1, of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. This is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Luke 8.26 says, parallel account, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. I think when they pulled the boat up on the shore, they looked at one another and said, we're not in Galilee anymore. (laughs) Get ready, boys. I don't know what we're going to see over here, but this is a side of the lake that the Jews didn't even want to consider. And here, uh, Jesus leads them right to confront evil. By the way, evil isn't confronting Jesus. Jesus is confronting evil. That's what he did. It was his idea to go to the other side of the lake. It was his idea to go to this area uh, of the Gerasene region. Now, there's a little discussion about uh, this particular region and where it was, but if you look at some history on it, what was happening is it was on the shore, and it had these kind of steep uh, hills that came down, and there were caverns up on the hillsides and there were cutouts you can see them today if you do a little internet search on this area and the caverns were kind of caves and there were tombs back there as well and so it was an area with steep cliffs kind of right on the shore and then if you looked up into the hillside you could see cutouts and you could see things where people could hide and even tombs up there and when he had come out of the boat mark 5 verse 2 immediately so no time to even really kind of get acquainted to the area. Immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Matthew 8, 28, the parallel account says, when he had come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him. And they were coming out of the tombs, and they were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by the road. Now, critics of the Bible say, was it two or was it one? Two men or one man? Two angels or one angel? You hear in different uh, gospel accounts, there was one angel, then there's two angels. Well, wherever there's two, there's one. I know that's deep. Try to think about it. I, I hope you had your coffee. I hope you were able to get a donut. But what you need to know is that gospel writers sometimes focus on one instead of two. Remember, these are eyewitness accounts, except for Luke's gospel. What we have in Mark is the recollections of Peter led by the Holy Spirit. Peter chooses to focus on the one, maybe the more dominant one, maybe the one whose transformation was more significant. I don't know for sure. But just remember, wherever there's two, there's one. This is not a contradiction. This is complementary. The gospel writers were aware of other other people's recollections, and there are even critical scholars that say one gospel writer borrowed from another. So look, they're not dumb. They're just focusing on, you know how eyewitness accounts, uh, you can hear people tell a story of an accident that happened or an event that happened that was kind of, you know, made people nervous and kind of... maybe threw them out of whack or surprised them. And if you get eyewitness accounts, how many different versions of a story can you get with people maybe 10 minutes later? It's not necessarily contradictory. It's just that some people focus on specific details while others don't. But here we have a man who runs down from the tombs and he has an unclean spirit. This is the stuff of a horror movie. This is the stuff of like, Jesus, I'm going to wait in the boat. But let's not forget, first of all, that this man is an actual human being. And uh, one writer says, typically but not always, those under the sway of demons descend to filthy living. He's said to have an unclean spirit, both physically and morally. 
It is not incidental that the rise of occultism and Satanism these last few years has been accompanied by increasing drug abuse, pornography, and obscenity, close quote. There's a dark world out there, folks. And the forces of darkness are behind a lot of this filth that is being spread all over our world. And when you open the door to this kind of junk, just remember what you are supporting. If you want to justify it or say, oh, it's not a big deal, what you give your money to, what you support, if you're messing with this stuff, you're ultimately messing that which is the darkest stuff on this earth. Now look, we all have our issues and struggles, but we might look at this particular individual and say, man, this is so far from me. I don't even know if I believe this. I don't even know if, if I believe this can happen. Oh, it can happen. And there's been very reputable sources that have told stories about supernatural strength and running into one story, Dr. Martin tells of a girl that weighed no more than 100 pounds and she was flipping people off of her like they were nothing. She had supernatural strength and she had been messing, in fact, her mom had been messing with a Ouija board and uh, seances and the like. You say, well, you know, is this an extreme case? Sure it is. And by the way, the Bible does not uh, attribute every weird case to demonic possession. It says that people were sick that Jesus dealt with. He dealt with epileptics. He dealt with, you know, people who were hurting in all myriad of issues. But he also dealt with people who were dealing with demonic darkness. The Bible tells us in many different places that we all can be influenced by Satan's work. Ephesians 4.27 says, don't give the devil an opportunity. It has to do with unresolved anger. Don't, uh, it warns not to fall into the condemnation and snare of the devil in 1 Timothy 3.6 and 7, which has to do with pride. 1 Timothy 4.1 talks about doctrines of demons. James 3.15 and 16 says, where there is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, it is wisdom from below that is unspiritual and demonic. The Christian is to suit up in Ephesians 6.11 against the schemes of the devil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Powers. Principalities and powers. Now, not everything that we deal with is demonic. C.S. Lewis said the devils love two things. One, that you are so fascinated with them that you believe everything that happens is because of them. And the other extreme that they love is that you don't believe in them. The truth has to be somewhere in the middle in this case. Oftentimes what happens to us in our lives has nothing to do with the devil. It's us. We look in the mirror and we have met the enemy. And it is us. Sometimes we've just taken the revolver metaphorically and shot ourselves in the foot. And we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. The devil made me do it. Doesn't always fly. However... He is still alive and active in this world, and we wrestle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Demonization, as some scholars call it, does occur, and Satan does move often in more subtle ways. You've all heard the song, Devil with the Blue Dress, Blue Dress Song. Did that just totally date me? <laughs> How many of you know that song? All right. <laughs> not totally alone and he Mark 5 3 had his dwelling among the tombs no one was able to bind him anymore even with a chain what a fitting picture a chain for a while they were able to chain him no, notice it says no one was able to bind him anymore it sounds like a digression sounds like for a while they could Sounds like for a while, they were able, almost like a wild animal, to kind of just tie this guy so he wouldn't cause too many problems. But th there was a digression, meaning that it got worse and worse. And this is what happens with people who mess with the occult. At first, it sounds good. You might say, well, what's the fascination to occultism and, and things like magic and witchcraft? Because there's a promise of power. There's a promise that you can control your environment. 
There's a weird fascination that some people have with the dark things and even that which is evil. We understand that. There's parts of us that we're kind of intrigued by that stuff. Hmm, I wonder what's going on there. And when you open the door, sometimes what happens is the face is a smiling face. Oh, this will be wonderful for you. It'll be great. It'll be a wonderful journey, a spiritual journey for you until you find that you've opened the door to something much darker than you realized. This is what happens with a lot of people. They become dead even while they live. 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And these two men, and the focus here on the one man, they were the walking dead. He didn't even live in a house anymore. He lived among the tombs. How fitting. He lived among the dead because in all Practical purposes, he was dead. Dead in his trespasses and sins. By the way, Ephesians 2.2 says, spiritually, that's where everybody is who doesn't know Christ. They're dead even while they live. But Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. He had come to save this man. Luke's parallel account, Luke 8.27, says, when he had come out onto the land, He was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He was not living in a house, but in the tombs. The man was naked, and he lived in a graveyard. Weird. This is the stuff of horror movies. This is like, whoa. What is going on with this particular individual? We've heard some stories of people who have been on PCP, people who have been in weird states of mind who run around naked, take off their clothes, and run around on the street. And when it happens, it's a bizarre situation indeed. And so they, uh, he descends to this filthy living, and he has become indeed a sad man. Because he had often been bound with shackles, look at Mark 5, 4, and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. You might want to write in your notes there, not yet. He's about to meet someone who's plenty strong enough. But it's gotten to the point where even the chains that people tried to use, he's able to break them now. And maybe even some people saw it as a game. Maybe he took your buddies up there and said, hey, let's go and see what we can deal with the dude up there. Teenagers typically do that kind of thing. Where are you going? We're going to take our buddies over there to see the madman. Don't do that. Now he's breaking the chains. I think he's at such a point now that nobody even wants to try. Sometimes in the night, people hear howls and screams, and they say, don't go over there. Lost cause, beyond help, signposted, witch's castle, half a mile ahead, I would turn around if I were you. Fans, name the movie, The Wizard of Oz. One of the greatest stories ever told. (laughs) And the lion, that sign was enough for him. Okay, let's go. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do. Sorry. Anyway. (laughs) And constantly, night and day, verse 5, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out. This means to croak or scream or shriek. Gashing himself. It means to chop down and mangle, to cut or to cut oneself to pieces. He would scream, move among the tombs and the mountains night and day constantly, and he would gash himself with stones. Radical. Torn apart, broken in pieces is a great description of the man. Intervals during night and day, he would let out a howl. He would gash himself with jagged rocks. One writer says, in an obvious attempt to drive out the evil spirits, The poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic displeasure. 
The man was wild, naked, unkempt, and dill. And as a result, all were against him. In his lucid moments, he surely realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcomed he was. He was dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. What incredible misery. Every detail emphasized his pathetic condition. If you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings movies, you see the story, the backstory is told how Gollum came to be Gollum or Schmeagol. And the whole thing is when he finds the ring of power. You guys know that story, right? And he kills his friend for the ring. You don't know the story? You guys got to watch the Lord of the Rings story. Anyway, the, the, ring, the ring just infatuates everybody. The ring is, it's a ring of evil. And so Gollum kills his best friend basically to get it. And once he puts the ring on, the ring begins to manipulate him and it becomes heavy and it begins to change his form until he deteriorates and he can no longer even be recognized for what he once was. It takes him down levels of depth of darkness and it's an incredible scene. He doesn't even look, he's a hobbit and he doesn't even look like a hobbit anymore. Tertullian says what... uh, is true of man is that the glory of God is a man fully alive, but what Satan wants to do is make or rob you of the glory of God. And so one thing that happens when people get into dark lifestyles is that Satan's attempt is to dehumanize them, to rob them of the image of God or the imago Dei. And this explains why some of what happens happens. In fact, if you've watched, if you've seen a, people, a person, for example, who's abused drugs, for many years, or been in a lifestyle that's taken them down, it's almost as if they've, they've become less human. The image of God is uh, almost robbed from them. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, literally to gulp you down entirely. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Just remember, Christian, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And by the way, as a Christian, you cannot be possessed. I know sometimes people wonder about this. You cannot. There's not a dual level condominium going on here. You know, people say, uh, can Christians be possessed? I don't think so. Christians are, are, have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can you be oppressed, harassed? Perhaps, yes. But he saw Jesus, verse 6, from a distance, and he ran up and bowed down. See the words bowed down? That's a single Greek word, proskuneo. It's where we get our word worship. I don't think he was worshiping, but I think he had no choice because the Bible says every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he runs up and bows down. If you're one of the disciples, you have to be standing behind Jesus at this point. (laughs) Unclean spirits were drawn by a strange fascination to Jesus, even though they knew he was their conqueror. In their view, the hated son of God. Terror and malice drove them to his presence. And crying out with a loud voice, verse 7, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? By the way, that reference to the Most High God is in the Old Testament. It means that God, the God of the Bible, is the God above every God. He is the Most High. Pagans would often worship false gods on mountaintops, on high places. And the Bible says, no, you may worship your false God up there, but he is the Most High God. King of kings and Lord of lords. God above all gods. In fact, every other God is a false god. But Satan is called the God, small g, of this world. It doesn't mean that there's more than one true God. It just means there are false gods. The Bible acknowledges that there are other false gods. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. But there's no other true God by nature. These are all false gods, masquerading and duping many, many people. What do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come, Matthew 8, 29, to torment us before the time? 
Notice the demon speaking through the man says, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Um, they were entreating him, Luke 8.31, not to command them to depart into the abyss. You see, the demonic spirits that are fallen angels, according to scripture, they know judgment day is coming. They just don't want to rush it. <laughs> and you can understand why. So it's kind of like, what are, you, what are you doing here? What are you doing on the other side of the lake? Have you come to torment us before the time? Even demons know how to beg and plead. Please, don't. He was saying, Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. The word legion to the Jewish mind means great numbers, but get this. A legion in the Roman army was 6,000 foot soldiers, 120 horsemen, plus technical personnel. If you take this literally, that means that this man is invade, invaded by thousands of spirits. What does that mean about their number that are just out there? What does that mean like when they find a life that they can harass that it gets worse and worse? And he begged... Verse 10, he entreated him earnestly not to send them out of the country. You know, once they find a place where they're comfy, they don't want to leave. Now, there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. Some of you have read this before, and you, you were reading this, and you're like, they're by the Sea of Galilee. What are pigs doing over there? That's an unclean animal to the Jews, but remember, they're on the Gentile side of the lake. That's why the swine are there. And it's... it's Likely that these are Gentile swine herders and there's this big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. All of a sudden, the demons entreated him. They begged him in a bizarre negotiation. Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. I have no clue why they asked that. You know, you could probably read 10 different opinions on what's going on with the pigs. I don't know. But they happen to be there, and I suppose for the demonic spirits that have invaded this man, it's better to go into a, the pigs than go nowhere or go out of the, the region. Or for them, a pig is the same as a man. That's maybe their view of life. And so what's about to happen is a whole boatload of bacon is about to go over <laughs> the side of the cliff. Matthew 12, 43 through 45, interesting cross-reference says, Now when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be, says Jesus, with this evil generation, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. Wow. It would appear that part of what Jesus is saying is that when a person hears truth, and let's say that something happens, a, a form of deliverance occurs in their life. Maybe, maybe you kick a habit or something, but the house does not become occupied by the living God. It becomes more susceptible for more evil. You can, you can do things to improve yourself morally. You can kick a habit, but it doesn't mean that you've been transformed by the living God. What you need is the Spirit of God. And so he gave them permission, 13, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd, and I'm sure the pigs were <laughs> surprised by what occurred, the herd rushed down the steep bank, so they're right there by the shore, into the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee. Notice this, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The Greek tense here shows it as one pig after another down off the cliff. I would imagine with many oinks. Yeah. Down they go. Another one. Splash. Splash, splash, splash. I mean, can you imagine being like a, walking up in the middle of this? 
what in the world? (laughs) What is going on around here? Strange, bizarre scene. Yeah, you've heard people joke, the first case in history of deviled ham and all that. Didn't even want to go there, but... In the process, the pigs become vehicles of judgment to the unsuspecting demons who pled to be cast into the animals. In fact, many prominent scholars believe that they were confined to the abyss awaiting final judgment right after this moment. So this becomes picturesque. In fact, it may even foreshadow the lake of fire where all the demons will be cast one day. And so... This is what's happened now. So now the camera pans to the herdsmen. They ran away. (laughs) You can imagine. (laughs) Probably sprinted and reported in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that happened. I'm sure they were going everywhere and saying, you won't believe what just happened. What? What? Well, the demon possessed the man up in the tomb. He was shrieking. He came. This guy came up on the shore. He did. And the pigs gone. It's not my fault. (laughs) I didn't do it, I promise. And they came to Jesus. All you can imagine this crowd huffing and puffing. They run up. They came to Jesus. They observed the man who had been demon-possessed. And notice what's happened to him. He's sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And the response, now here's a man who went around naked, crazy, who knows if he even sat down, possessed, and now he's sitting down, picture of being at rest, clothed, maybe one of the cloaks, extra cloaks of the disciples was given to him, maybe Jesus gave him a cloak, and in his right mind. And they look, maybe pigs were still going over, I don't know. And they looked at the man, and they looked at Jesus, and they were like, wow. Now, you would expect that the next reaction the Bible would record would be joy. What happened to you, man? Wow. You were were the legion? Yeah. The one that broke the chains, the one up there howling in the tombs, a plight to our whole region? Yeah. Lucid, calm, at peace, clothed. You expect the next reaction is joy, but no, the next reaction was fear. Why? Was the transformation too much for them? You know, sometimes it's an interesting phenomenon in our world. Some parents in our world get more concerned for the young people in our society after they become Christians instead of when they were out in the world destroying themselves. That's when they become more concerned. And even perhaps fearful, don't take this thing too far. Don't don't give up your path or your career, honey, for this Jesus thing, right? Kind Kind of take your time and measure your steps. The man was free. His chains were broken. What a beautiful picture of what salvation does. Makes us free, puts us in our right mind. I'm sure first awe, but then anger. And those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to entreat Jesus to what? To depart from their region? After they heard the story, they got probably multiple accounts. Even the demon-possessed man perhaps shared a little bit. The reaction, please leave now. We don't want you here anymore. Wow. We don't want a bunch more people who are whacked out and possessed being set free. What? We don't like your kind around here. We, we kind of got used to us howling up in the tombs. 
put me to sleep at night. I mean, what in the world? What's going on around here? Do you think that it's possible that an area becomes so used to darkness that when light comes, they just prefer darkness? The Bible says that men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is tragic. Maybe it's even more tragic than the man himself that these people, instead of a great revival happening in the city, Matthew 8, 34 says the whole city came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Please get out of here. We don't want you here. Could it be because of the financial loss? Maybe this was part of the plan of Darkness was if the pigs go over the side, then people can be angry at Jesus because this is quite a loss financially, right? Is it possible that the people that were raising the pigs and maybe feeding the pork to the Romans who are dominating were compromising Jews? A thought. It seems unlikely given the belief system of the Jews and that The Mishnah said, you don't even mess with pork, but yet, who knows what they were doing? What people won't do for money. Do you think that this was a message deeper than we might think? A slap in the face to materialism that will cause a man to descend and give up his values and become pig-headed? Yeah. The living word, the Messiah, the deliverer, right in front of them. And they say, leave. Here's the good news. Jesus is going to come back to this region later and do a feeding miracle. And the people will then be open to him. So there's some hope here. But they say, leave. And Jesus, verse 18, says, okay, And as he was getting into the boat, this is sad. You know, if you don't want him in your life, I think he will honor your choice. And this becomes a picture of free will. Jesus didn't say to them, I'm staying, and there's nothing you can do about it. He got in the boat. And the man who had been when all future interviews, the man formerly known as Legion, 18. <laughs> yeah, it was a joke. A weak attempt. <laughs> the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. Can you imagine this man now? Lucid, at peace. I think implications are he's saved. He knows the Lord. His one request Doesn't care what all these other people say. His one request is, wherever you go, I want to be with you. That's discipleship. That's a man or woman saying, Lord, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. Wherever you send me, that's where I want to go. Whatever you tell me to say, that's what I'm going to say. Whatever, however you tell me to live, that's what I'm going to do. Because I was once dead. And I'm alive again. I was lost, but now I'm found. Please, Christian, don't ever forget what the Lord's delivered you from. Don't ever forget it. Because the devil will cause you to forget where you were in those times. And the man who had been, well, he begged Jesus, please, take me with you. I've got nothing here. I cannot see myself without you. I want to serve you. And verse 19 says, Jesus did not let him go. Do you know that there's sometimes when your prayer requests are good and reasonable and you ask the Lord and it seems noble and he says, no. You're like, what? You know, sometimes God's response to our prayers is no. Is that within your thinking? When you pray about something that God is actually God and you're not. (laughs) You know, 
We often pray and it seems that our prayers have become about God baptizing our plans and if he doesn't, then we've got a problem with God. But when you pray about something biblically, that's, you're asking God. Like you might want to even ask him before you make the decision, right? Or before you do something and then you look back on it and say, God, uh, help. <laughs> it's always good if you pray before. And so he says, Lord, I want to go. And Jesus says, no, I've got another plan for you. Go home to your people or your family. Look at 19. And report to them what great things the Lord, and Jesus is calling himself the Lord in verse 19, has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now I have another plan for you. Go and tell your people. You're going to go from madman to missionary right now. You're going to become a witness to the Decapolis in this region. I mean, who could resist wanting to interview you? <laughs> the man formerly known as Legion. Tell me again. I just want to hear the story one more time. All right. How did he get there? What doors did he open in his life to get to this terrible state? I'm sure it started subtly. I'm sure he told the story on the circuit. Well, one little compromise, one little opening, one little, uh, this is no big deal. I can handle this. It'll be all right. I won't get too deep into darkness. And finally, I found myself dominated by a multitude. I no longer even had control. And he went away. And began to proclaim or herald in Decapolis, 20, final verse, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. When Jesus comes back to this territory in a few chapters in the Gospel of Mark, the people are excited and ready to hear what he has to say. I would imagine that the man formerly known as Legion then did a great job. See, Jesus had him in a preparation ministry you're going to get this area prepared for when I come back on the next boat ride. These people are going to have their hearts open because they're going to hear your story over and over and over again. Go to your family and tell your people what great things the Lord has done for you. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you told somebody the great things the Lord has done for you? When's the last time you shared your testimony? I read a writer this week that said, in many ways, he wonders about the existence of missions and evangelism departments in churches because he says the whole church should be doing missions and evangelism, not just a portion. Now look, we, we know certain people have certain callings, and I'm not putting that down, but it made me think, because sometimes by us knowing that we have missions and evangelism departments, that means we don't have to do it. Other people are doing it. Isn't that what I write that check for on Sunday morning? Other people can tell people. Wait a minute. It's you. You're supposed to be telling people what Jesus has done for you. You're supposed to be a missionary to your neighborhood or whatever circle of influence that you have. Maybe you can say, this is the way my life used to be. Do you know that this area became a powerful stronghold for Christianity uh, in fact, in the early centuries of the, the church, future church councils, all early church councils had a bishop from the area of Kersi, which is this region of the Gerasenes of the Gadarenes. We're about to come to the Lord's table for communion. And as we do, I just want to ask you some questions. Has evil gotten a grip on your life? Are you in some chains right now? You're a believer, or at least a professed one, but man, this story is hitting home for you. Does evil still have a grip on you? Does your life, or is your life filled with filth and controlled by evil? Well, he can deliver you too if you're willing to say, yes, Lord. If you're willing to run up to him and say, Jesus, have mercy on me, would you bow? Father, thank you for this incredible story 
of a man radically delivered, a man that was probably one of the scariest people in the Bible, and a man who became a missionary of the light of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for these kinds of transformations. The Bible says you move us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan or the dominion of Satan to God. You give us forgiveness of our sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in you. Thank you, Lord. You are so good. With your head and heart bowed, if you have not received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if at least portions of this story are all too familiar, he can break the chains right now. If you're a backslidden Christian, with your head and heart bowed, you've been compromising and the darkness is becoming a bit overwhelming. It's time to repent and return to your first love. It's something like this, Jesus, and I would encourage you right now, pray it out loud. Don't worry about who's next to you. Worry about him. Jesus, save me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead to defeat sin, the devil, and death itself. Please save me. Break the chains in my life. Break the chains in my marriage. Break the chains in my own personal life and what I've allowed to come in, the compromises, the subtlety of the enemy. Restore to me, Lord, the joy of thy salvation. Renew a right spirit in me. Cry out to him, saint. Cry out to him if you're here and you have not met him. You're not sure if you're a Christian. You're not sure if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. Make sure. Oh, Lord, search my heart. See if there's any evil way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. And Lord, before we close this time and come to your table, we just want to say thank you that you pursue the lost. Mark 10, 45 says, you did not come to be served, but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many. And even in the case of this demoniac, the cross was ahead of you and you would die naked, scorned, bleeding, mocked, ridiculed. And you would sacrifice on that cross for me. Thank you for loving me this way. I just pray that this room would be filled with people where the chains are broken. People are being set more and more free by the Son of God. Release your mighty power, Lord. Bring healing and restoration to all of our lives. We're all susceptible to fall. Forgive us for the times that we have, but let us also rejoice in a God who's full of mercy. Go and tell how the Lord has mercy on you, had mercy on you. Father, we just want to say thank you. And as we come to your table now, meet us here, refresh us, revive us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As the elements come around, if you're a believer, we want to invite you to partake. Please hold them and we'll take them together in a few moments.